All right, we are here, episode 16, Stem Cell Scientist in Washington. I am Dr. Christopher Pisano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat. This is the Stem Cell Podcast. What's going on, my man? Uh, nothing much. How are you doing over there? I'm pretty good, man. I will be better next week because I'm going on vacation. See, man, I am out. Oh, excellent. So I will be a lot better next week. I got to get through this week and I'm good. But uh, everything else is good. How's, nice. wor- how's your world? How's NYC? Uh, things are good. Things are good. Moving along. About to get a new project started that I'm really excited about uh, based off of my ideas. Finally got that funding stream going. And uh, it's, all about, it's all about that stream, man. Yeah. You got to get that stream in there. Exactly. And it's always that's nice. A- that's awesome. Starting a new project is fun. You get, like, you know, you get that excitement going. It's, it's, a, it's a cool time when you start something new. Yeah, it's definitely building. And it's a, it's a quickie project, too. So I have to be on my, on my grind. So I'm trying to hit the ground running you know how it is so go for it man good uh, good luck so yeah um, I'm re- I, that, I said, that, we said episode 16 i can't believe we did 16 episodes already isn't that yeah, crazy since october and uh this one i think uh you, you kind of had to raise your voice towards the end in washington because there's in washington a qu- yeah because there's that question mark hopefully uh so we're going to be interviewing dr raja katapa uh, and hopefully he's he's gonna win his race to to be a con- congressman in the House of Representatives here in the United States, and uh, we know him uh, personally as a, a pretty phenomenal stem cell scientist. And um, this switch to Washington in politics is sort of came out of left field, but uh, I'm excited to pick his brain and see uh, w- what caused that change and what he hopes to accomplish. Raj called the lab the other day. I got a message that Raja Katapa called, and I said, "Raja Katapa, I haven't, I haven't like seen Raj. I, I know he was over in Cambridge in England. That's the last I heard doing some really awesome work with uh, Austin Smith. And uh, I go to find his information, and it says I get this website Raja for Congress, and I was like, Congress, what the hell? So we're gonna find <laughs> out why he did that. Uh, it's really awesome. It's a cool story. So I'm excited. Um, so let's get everything moving along, man. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's any business. You guys know to contact us at uh, stemcellpodcast at gmail.com, at stemcellpodcast. Uh, so keep everything coming in on Facebook. What am I missing, Yo? Is there anything? Uh, no, I mean, we could discuss uh, future possible interviewees, but uh, I don't know. Well, I like to keep it a surprise. What do you think? Yeah, I kind of like the surprise too. Sorry, guys. <laughs> okay, sorry. So, uh, so all right, let's roll into the uh, let's roll into the uh, papers. Yos, why don't you take your side, and yeah. then I'll get into mine. Yeah, I feel like it's been forever. I've got a bunch of stories, but I'm just going to plow through them real quick. So. There's a lot of stuff. I saw that too. A lot yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So for the science roundup, uh, let's start off quick with a nice J Neuro study. Uh, Journal of Neuroscience is a PET study, a positron emission tomography study showing that. Uh, detailing the male ejaculation uh they were able i don't ask me how they did these pet studies but i read the abstract and the female partners were involved but they were basically imaging the brain during that moment you know what i read that i saw this and uh they showed stimulation i was thinking the same thing man how did they do that (laughs) they were showing stimulation in the vta or ventral tegmental area similar to a heroin rush uh, and they also showed uh, stimulation in the zona inserta, the cerebellum, which was 
uh, cerebellum, of, yeah, huh? Yeah, yeah. And uh, the subparafascicular nucleus, the midline, and the claustrum. And they also show decreased activity in the amygdala, which is the fear center fear. of the brain. So and you're not, you're, you're like, yeah, you're, you're totally fearless. <laughs> and the entorhinal cortex. So I thought that was interesting. And that is really Jane interesting. You know, it's, you know, that for, for everybody, the VTA uh, is, a re- is part of the reward circuitry in the brain that we use as a way to reinforce behavior. And as you can imagine, it's, you know, the, as humans, right, you also, I guess, we want to be rewarded for reproduction. So that's... Yeah. There's your reward. There's your reward. <laughs> uh, Journal of Psychopharmacology studies showing that three days after infusion of ketamine can have depression scores in 29% of their patients, uh, depressed patients. Uh, so this was a depression study. Um, and this isn't the first study that I've seen using the, the party drug ketamine, or special K as they call it, to treat depression. Um, and apparently it's a lot more fast acting than things like Prozac. Um, so there's another hmm. possible avenue for uh, an intervention. We should do a, a podcast on, maybe on depression sometime because it's... I would love to do that. It's an it's a, it's a important topic, man. Yeah, Very yeah. important. Um, there was a science paper uh, recently showing that they could build uh, chromosomes from scratch. Uh, these were this was the first one done in eukaryotic. From yeah, scratch. yeah. This was uh, the first. This has been done before, but not with uh, eukaryotes. So they had done it with the uh, brewer's yeast. So uh, yeah, look look forward to custom made organisms in the future. Um, Good old brewer's yeast, man. Yeah, I know. Uh, there was a what's our favorite journal? Penis. Yes, the proceedings in the National Academy of Science. I'm gonna have to stop doing that at some <laughs> point. Penis study showing uh, that they were able to reverse schizophrenia in mice. They had this what? crazy chemically induced um, reduction of uh, disc one, which I know you've heard of yeah. before. The disc gene um, in mice. Uh, so that they were able to use this PAK inhibitor, PAK inhibitor, mm. uh, called FRAX, I guess for Fragile X, I don't know, F-A-R-X-486. Yeah. This inhibitor was able to halt the pruning process uh, in their chemically induced model of uh, schizophrenia. So uh, you can find that over in PNAS. Um, uh, pruning's important, and I don't feel like it gets a lot of press, but you got to prune, man. Just like your shrubs outside, if you let those babies grow too much, it's going to get risky. You got to make sure that everything's kept. Yeah, the brain in development own. has its own Mr. Miyagi, you know, pruning yeah, the... Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> pruning the trees there, so... um. Uh, moving on, there was a PLOS-1 study that identified good bacteria in the vagina that helps to stave off HIV infection. Now, this study was important because it was the first to grow human vagina cells uh, that allow for colony formation of bacteria, uh, which can be collected during gynecological exams. And so now they could test uh, which is the good and the bad bacteria uh, using this model. So you could find So like that. a cell culture model? Yeah. That's crazy. I, yeah, for human vagina cells. I I I, mean, I wonder the, what the what those cells are. Like, what's the origin? The epithelial? I have no idea. Yeah, uh, this one begs so many uh, comical comics that I'm, I'm just going to skip over the next one because 
growing <laughs> growing <laughs> that in the dish is pretty funny. Uh, so that's PLOS one, uh, but it's actually a, a, a important breakthrough. Um, there was a nature materials study uh, where they turned E. coli into amyloid based curly fiber fibers. Um, with gold nanoparticles and quantum dots to make a biofilm that is uh, uh, the basis for these electrical switches. So you may be seeing uh, electricity being conducted via E. coli and all these gold nanoparticles. Huh. Yeah, I, lo- I just love gold nanoparticles and quantum dots, all that sort of new technology I, I just, I'm fascinated by. So you can find that in Nature Materials. Um Moving on, there was a Nedjum, or New England Nedjum. Journal yeah, of Medicine, uh, by um, a group. This was actually a really important study on. Uh, they showed that uh, there was a six layer, uh, of the six layers of the, corti- the cortical layers were disorganized in autism. They observed uh, focal patches of abnormal laminar archite- uh, cytoarchitecture and cortical disorganization of neurons, but not glia in the prefrontal and temporal cortical tissue from uh, children that were uh, 10 and 11 um, with autism. So, uh, th- th- basically showing, uh, a cortical, uh, layer disorganization in, uh, the six layers of the cortices. So I thought that was interesting. You can find that in Nedjum. The, the author, the, I thought his name was funny. His name is Rich Stoner. <laughs> it must be nice I know, to be, you know, to I, cause I, I read that paper and I couldn't get it. So I asked somebody, I said, can you get me this paper? It's by Stoner at all. And then yeah. I thought about it for a second. <laughs> and his it's name a, is Rich Stoner. It must be nice to be a rich Stoner. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an awesome, it's a really cool paper. They, the, the pictures in there are awesome. Yeah. They do these yeah. like 3D reconstructions of these brains and they show you that these are in these autistic patients. They got these patches that are all disorganized. It's really, it's very, very cool. Very yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I know you're into autism, so I had to bring that up. Yeah. Thank um, you. There was a, a PLOS medicine study showing that four biomarkers, uh, albumin and citrate, where one of them can predict death within five years. So it's like... What? Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know. How scary is that? You're oh, like, my, oh my God. Gosh, That's the, crazy. The grim reaper of markers here. Uh, you got the... So you can find that in PLOS medicine. Um, the uh, There was... Uh, Actually, uh, this isn't uh, published yet, but it was presented at the British Endocrine Society's conference that those with uh, low levels of thyroid hormone and also uh, uh, possessing a deiodinase 2 variant were four times more likely to have an IQ under 85, which is you know, almost retarded. I mean, it's Jeez. pretty low. Yeah. It's, uh, so, uh, this was an exceptionally low score. And, um, I guess this is like the combination for idiocy or I don't know the dumb gene if you want. Uh, so, um, that could be interesting. A lot of people try and find what's the genius gene. Yeah. What's I know. That, you know? They really do. They really want to <laughs> know, know that, huh? There was a JAMA, uh, Autolaryngology uh, study or head and neck uh, surgery linking to uh, HPV, human papillomavirus, uh, to oral pharyngeal cancer. Uh, but this cancer is less aggressive. Uh, so there may be truth to what uh, Michael Douglas was saying about. Um, 
Oh, the yeah, uh, that whole controversy that with he, got the, into he said with that his neck like cancer. oral sex led to his uh, neck throat cancer, cancer. Yeah. neck cancer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, that, that was so that. random, by the way. Do you know? Like, I was just on CNN, just reading, and all I see in the top right corner it was Michael Douglas says that throat cancer from oral <laughs> sex. I was like, what the hell is uh, yeah. going on? You, you know, before he said that, I never even had conceived of that. But uh, apparently, JAMA autolaryngology studies. JAMA, showing, JAMA, yeah, JAMA again. Uh, there was a PLOS genetics linking uh, the gene Duff twelve twenty. Oh, it's actually not gene; it's a segment of the DNA DUF twelve twenty with autism spectrum disorder severity. So it's just these like blocks of DNA. Uh, so you can find that in PLOS genetics. Uh, really quick, a neuroscience letters study showing that the DRD2 gene clustered in families with forgetfulness um, and mm. the thymine DRD2 variant um, basically falls victim to forgetfulness while the cysteine type of DRD2 were protected. And uh, real quick, two quick studies, sorry, three. Uh, PLOS genetic study produced uh, 3D models of faces extrapolated from a person's DNA. So you can find that in PLOS what? genetics. That's yeah, crazy. working backwards from the DNA to produce a face. And oh, yeah. um, a nature climate change uh, uh, report on the Greenland's northeastern uh, ice loss tripled in the last decade. And even though it's been stable for uh, 25 years, so that's scary. I just saw something on Vice, too, on the melting yeah, I, of Greenland. Yeah, I saw that, man. Yeah, so that's uh, very Vice scary. is good. If you guys like, should check Vice out. It's a good show. It's on HBO. Uh, there was a science paper showing that humans can distinguish at least one trillion different o- odors. Did you see that? No. Yeah. How many? One trillion? Yeah, it was presumed what? to be 10,000 in the past from like a 1920s estimation. They were way guys, off. Yeah, they were a little off. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm just going to wrap it up because we're running low on time. But there was um, a study in uh, Nedrum again by Carl June uh, where they were able to gene edit the CCR5 gene. Uh, in about 10 billion uh, CD4 positive T cells with zinc finger nucleases. And this is in the context of HIV to stop HIV from getting into the cell. And uh, this was done in partnership with Sangamo. And uh, one of the four patients, HIV was undetectable, but in some of them, it also rebounded. So this could be a future gene editing uh, technology to uh basically uh, cure people from HIV in the future. I think there's real possibility for this um, proof of principles out there. So uh, look. Gene gene editing, man. Yeah, yeah, it's there. So uh, yeah, on that all end, I have a couple more, but it's about time. I want to hear your studies, what you got going on over there. Uh, You know, I was just thinking, though, when you talked about the face, making the face, the DNA to face, uh, there's a researcher out west, out in California. She does, she looks at neural crest and she and epigenetics and she's able she's trying to understand how they're the minute change not really understand but part of it relates to you can identify the minute changes in facial structure like the nose a little bit higher or the cheekbone just by how the neural crest migrates 
yep. and moves just on a slight bit off. It changes the structure, and she looks at the epigenetics behind it. It's, it's awesome. It's, it's really, really cool stuff. Yeah, we should say that the face comes from neural crest cells that migrate um, during development and make your face. So if you don't like your face, blame your neural crest cells. Yeah, your neural crest. We should have her on to come on and explain. Neural crest, I know you brought it up. It would be a good topic to talk about in the show. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's, let's, let's go through. So I got a bunch of things, but I want to spend – I want to spend the first few minutes on this because it's important and uh, came up and it's making a lot of headline news, regular news. And this is the continuation of the stab soap opera, man. Oh boy. Uh, this has just become like a real soap opera. I mean, it was like a show like Yosef called me last week. He's like, Oh man, did you see this article? I mean, this is what it is. <laughs> so basically now there was this committee do you Rickin. say Riken or Riken? What do you say? No, Rickin. after after uh, after uh, we interviewed Justin, um, I say Riken. That's right. Yeah. So at the Riken, so they basically, and it was uh, some people from there, some outside, and basically what they said was that they found um, her basically guilty of of what, like fraud, I guess, of misconduct, I believe, guilt, like misconduct in her work, and specifically what they pointed to were those images. You know, like manipulated images, uh, certain some things they said could be a mistake, but the images really is just not a good situation. So now this investigation separate from the questions about her thesis, uh, apparently copying and pasting from the NIH website, uh, you know, her section on in her introduction. uh, Yeah. Yeah. So there are better places to plagiarize than the NIH website if you're going to do that. So I'm I'm starting to question her in general. I mean, I can't believe plagiarism in general, but, I mean, these are really stupid things to do. But then what happened after this Rickon report came out? Well, so then, so so before that, so just, just to be clear, that this group or this the committee, they didn't determine whether the technique is valid, right? That's not what they were charged to do. They only said that she was guilty of some sort of misconduct, right? So then this then this report comes out, and it was weird because Nature, Nature put it, I, I read it on Nature, Nature News, they put it out, uh, and they said that uh, a scientist uh, can, you know, can basically do this protocol, which is not true, it's not what they showed, but the, what was his name again, Yosef? Uh, the, the Chinese scientist who, yeah, uh, the guy who said that he did it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll look it up while you can. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. But anyway, there was a report that someone was doing this, this step and they have evidence of it working. So the evidence really was, I think it was like two or three genes that are normally expressed in pluripotent cells. Now we're, we're turned on. Now you guys have to remember that for a cell to become pluripotent, it needs more than three genes. It needs to have a whole genomic signature. And so, by no means did he suggest that he got it to work. He just said that there's some evidence that it might be working. And I really, I saw that nature said that someone can repeat it. And I thought that was just so false. We just got to calm down with all of these conclusions. Yeah. Um, I mean, so anyway, it looked like where the does death it stand? Nail, like, what are, it looked like the death nail was in that paper, the stat paper. And then this guy, uh, his name is Kenneth Kaho Lee. So K-A-Ho-H-O Lee, a professor stem and stem cell scientist at Chinese University of Hong Kong, basically threw her a life, uh, uh, you know, preserver because it looked like 
she was about it was to all drop. downhill yeah, it ship was, yeah. it was going down yeah and and said, she she says joseph that she's gonna appeal like she said that she's this is not true like you know this she said she's not going to accept it and she's gonna try to fight it so yeah this isn't i gonna mean, go anywhere yeah but if you figure they've sent nobody else's there are a lot of labs working on this and in, including ours and nobody's really been able to reproduce the 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 what should be clear findings from that paper. So, um, yeah, we'll see, what, we'll see what's going to happen here. It's going to drag out. The unfortunate thing about this whole thing is that once again, stem cells are on CNN.com and for <laughs> the purpose of being, there's a fraud, you know, like it's not good. I mean, people want to dislike stem cells for, for whatever reason and having, having fraudulent reports in the mainstream news is just not helping our cause. Yeah. But you know, you, you gotta figure there's gotta be some there, there you know like there's got to be something going on there's no sure there's got to be something yeah. to the steps I, i'm just wondering what it is uh, what wh- what's causing oct4 semi oct4 positive cells to come out of nowhere Dude, I, you know what i yeah. don't know i do know that there was a paper that i'm surprised no one really is talking about but there was a paper i thought it was innate i did talked about it on the show uh, by someone out in California that showed mechanical stress. If you stress fibroblasts by plating them in these grooves that squeeze the cells, yeah, yeah. the reprogramming efficiency is much, much higher. Yeah, I remember so there's, that. There, there is something to maybe acid or some sort of severe treatment to a cell that can cause it to do something. It's just in this protocol, it's just obviously not robust if people can't do it. You yeah. Know? So. yeah, so okay, there's anyway, the step controversy. It's, it's still, still going. Well, I'm sure it'll go through and, and and we'll see what happens at the big meetings this year, what, what people are talking about. But anyway, so the soap opera continues as, what is it, as sands through an hourglass? So are the days of our lives. <laughs> yes, yes. So all are right. stop cells. Uh, all right. So there were, there were a couple cool uh, papers that came out in regards to ALS recently. Uh, we had um, about that genetic variant of ALS. Was that what, C9 or 72 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay, so the first paper was in cell stem cell out of the lab of Su Chun Shang, who's just awesome. Yeah, he's amazing. And then uh, it's modeling ALS with iPS cells and, to re- and reveals that mutant SOD1 misregulates neurofilament balance and motor neurons. So basically in ALS, we you have this selective degeneration of the motor neurons, which you need, obviously, for all of your motor activity. So it's this terrible progressive death where you 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 just you can't you walk look like Stephen Hawkins at the end basically. Yeah, exactly. Eventually the the neurons that are innervating your diaphragm, you know, you eventually stop breathing. It's just a horrible disease. So the labs have been using iPS cells to model it. So Kevin Eggins was one of the first to show that they can make uh, ALS uh, lines from patients. And so in this in this study, what they showed, which is interesting, and it, it's a little bit different than some of the literature out there, they use IPS from this superoxide dismutase mutated patients. SOD1 uh, is one of the mod. If you knock that out, it's one of the models to get a degeneration of motor neurons. So they showed that the spinal motor neurons, uh, and but rarely non-motor neurons, rarely exhibited this neurofilament aggregation in the in the uh, um, in the neuron, followed by this neurite degeneration when glia were not present. Um, and so uh, they're able to then kind of have this 
uh, model of what's how these cells might be dying uh, in this model. Did they show cell death? I mean, because it's really hard to model these diseases in a dish without old neurons, right? We've talked about this before. Yeah, I mean, they, it's it's really they were really looking at aggregation and then this neurite degeneration. So they got like this neurite degeneration. Do you know okay. what I mean? Okay. Uh, so not so much death, but I'm, I'm sure. The, I mean, there leads to more death, but they were really focused on that how they start regressing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting. And then um, this is out of the lab of Ke- uh, Kevin Egan and Clifford Wolf. Um, this was in Cell Reports, and it was intrinsic membrane hyperexcitability of ALS patient-derived motor neurons. And um, one of the first authors is a friend of mine, Vangelos Kiskinis, who's uh, awesome, a postdoc in Kevin's lab. I think we're going to try to get him on the show. He can walk us through. But basically, they took... Um, again, they've used IPS cells, um, and they generated these motor neurons uh, and in the familial forms of ALS and control. And what they saw was that their neurons were hyper-excitable. So they were just like over-excitable uh, compared to the, to the control. And so uh, what they, they found this was due to um, potassium channels. Hmm. So you get these channels, ion channels on cells that control, especially on neurons, they control their firing rates. Mm -hmm. So when they say hyper-excitable for everybody out there, that just means that the neuron is just overactive. So using um, a blocker for this channel, they can basically improve. It'll block this hyper-excitable, bring it back down to normal levels, and that will improve motor neuron survival in these SOD mutants. So they think they've identified a possible way electrophysiologically to uh, slow these neurons down and then ultimately prevent their dying, which is pretty cool. Hmm. So that's two papers about ALS, one on the basically how the, how the disease is. Yeah, I remember he had a whole prostaglandin story uh, with the IPS cells um, for the SOD mutants. Uh, maybe that was a presentation. This is the actual pr- uh, paper. So now he published, they published that like glia was really, really very, yeah. very important. And the yeah. glia were releasing it. Um, yeah. That was that, this story. This was just looking at the uh, intrinsic property of the neuron itself. Okay. So um, so that was cool. Uh, let's see here. Um, this one was in stem cell reports. Mouse SCNT ESCs, uh, embryonic stem cells, have lower somatic mutation load than uh, syngeneic syn- syn- IPS cells. So I, I guess, I didn't know this, Joseph, that... During reprogramming, so when you make IPS cells, these topic expression of these factors, um, I mean, what um, induces a lot of these genetic aberrations and gene mutations, um, and so they wanted to test whether the, this increased somatic mutations um, are, are just prime, are the byproduct of these reprogramming methods. Um, and so basically, what they did was they made ESCs. So they took fibroblasts. It's easier to explain this. But they took fibroblasts and they did uh, SCNT and made ESCs. Or they converted them to iPSCs. So when you say what, SCNT, that's somatic cell nuclear transfer, the old way we used to the clone, old school way, yeah, 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 versus IPS, which is genetically induced, um, versus uh, SCNT is an empty egg uh, reprogramming. Yes. Yeah. So they so they were, so they were programming fibroblasts and they use SCNT and then they did exome sequencing and they found that there is a significantly lower mutation load in these SCNT ESCs than the iPSCs from the same sample of fibroblast so what wow. they're suggesting is the repro yeah but there's the reprogramming methods are just not not good they induce all this genetic mutations and that's actually really highlighted in this study if you use the same founder cell and turn it into another pluripotent cell the es-like cell 
um, so, and you see a much, much reduced mutation load, which is really, really so interesting. So that, that puts emphasis back on Dr. Metalopov uh, being able to reprogram. He was the first person to clone uh, the human, uh, basically, uh, without using genetic uh, reprogramming factors. That was the one where they took enucleated eggs and used to added a little caffeine and were able to yep. do what uh, Wusek Wang claimed to have done years before, but uh, this was actually... Uh, the truth. Uh, so that that's interesting. I mean, that puts more emphasis on the more natural way of reprogramming. I guess if you if you will. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, I mean, I th- I, th- I feel that um, SCNT. I think a lot of people think that it would be the better way to go. I mean, the cell, the resulting pluripotent cell, might be a more pure cell. Yeah. Uh, but you know. Let's. It's a. It's a more difficult process, right? I mean, I mean we should it's say better. But that, that's why everybody was so psyched about the stem cells. Exactly. Because it, exactly. it was. It was no need for you know uh, empty eggs and you know donations from young women, and that's a very hard process to get those eggs. So uh, we'll see. I mean, it looks like. Uh, that's still in question, but it would be nice to do it naturally, as this, I guess, puts emphasis on more naturally. I mean, it's all unnatural. Exactly. To, like, exactly. To, but um. So that was in us. Uh, that was in stem cell reports. Check that out. Um, let's see here. I'm we're we're, we're running low on time because I want to bring Rajan. So let me just I'll read like a quick summary of this one and maybe another one. This was in uh, penis. Yes. This is uh, combined hydrogels that switch human pluripotent stem cells from self renewal to differentiation. This is really cool. So they. You know, we all know that it's all about the niche. That's what I always say, right? It's the environment that really m- makes the difference. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain signals that maintain a pluripotent state, and then there are a different set of signals that force those same cells to differentiate. And so as uh, technically in the lab, we induce differentiation by swapping out growth factors and changing conditions. So in this study here, um, they developed a hydrogel system. So hydrogel is like a matrix you could put down, tailored to promote either stem cell self-renewal um, or differentiation by, mon- by, by basically modifying the chemical environment. So basically they have this uh, hydrogel fabrication and through some sort of ionic uh, reaction, they can switch it so that it will change and then force your – and then basically kick the cells out and they'll start differentiation. So you don't have to add anything. It's just the substrate that they're sitting on. Huh. So you're able to control – um, that process just by altering the microenvironment, which is pretty cool. I'm, I'm into those techniques. I like those cell culture techniques and new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's in PNAS. Uh, and then I'll, 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 this will be the last one. There is this nature structural and molecular biology that says the retrovirus, HERVH, mm-hmm. is a long non-coding RNA required for human embryonic stem cell identity. Ooh. So this is weird. This is, this is showing that... Um, uh, material from viruses are vital in making human embryonic stem cells what they are. are they, so is this a line element, or it's like a yeah, it's like a tra- it is. It's a transposable line, so it'll it's jump, it'll jump around. Oh, but man. they say that it's it's like this retrovirus. Like, you know, scientists thought that endogenous retrovirus was basically like junk DNA. They didn't yeah. really do anything, you know. Yeah, yeah those But hurt. now they're now they're showing that they're like they're really doing. So this is like an endogenous retrovirus. Uh, family. It's this HERVH DNA, and they saw that it was very active in embryonic stem cells, but not in other human cell ty- other cells. You know, so they did these studies. They block it, and when they block it, 
they, they destroy pluripotency. So it's saying it's wild to see that these elements are playing, uh, play such a crazy role in embryonic stem cell. Wow. Um, it's pretty wild. I mean, you got to think, are they just relics from like, you know, our genetic past? Or are they actively doing stuff? These, these sequences of DNA that seem to jump around and depending on the cell type propagate or have a different, uh, signature. I mean, we've seen from Fred Gage's lab, all those line elements and what they do in neurons. Yeah. And now yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. Dude, well, check this out. So they said that more than a thousand copies are all over the human genome, and the DNA sequences are unique to humans and apes. Okay. Wow. And apparently, they invaded primates less than twenty million years ago. Said this evolutionary geneticist. Nice. Um, and it's not necessary for pluripotency in other organisms. Wow. So this is some sort of evolutionary adaptive kind of way to make to give more power to the pluripotent cell. It's pretty I mean, wild. We've talked about this before. How do you explain transposable elements? And it's like if this, if the DNA genome was a matrix, like the movie The Matrix, these guys would be like the key maker or the Merovingian. They're their own rogue programs. They go and come as they please. And I, it's hard for me to wrap my head around like their regulation and what their role is in the I have no I idea mean, how to explain it either. All I know is that their pieces, they jump into DNA and that's never a good situation. So yeah. on that, let us like transpose on to the next uh, nice. session here. I like, I like that. All right, Chris, why don't you bring on our guest? All right. So tonight uh, on the episode, our guest is Dr. Raj Katapa. Uh, so this is an interesting uh, guest, Joseph, because uh, Raj is a stem cell scientist has taken a different tra- trajectory in his career. Uh, so let me give a brief intro on uh, Raj, and, and then we'll uh, introduce him and let him tell us a little bit about himself. So um, like I said, uh, Raj is a stem cell scientist. He got his Ph.D. from Princeton University uh, with Dr. Ihor Lamishka. Uh, then went on to uh, the NIH where he worked at a postdoc, worked with uh, Dr. Ron Mackay. Uh, as you can see, those are two uh, pretty big-name stem cell scientists. We, we, Yosef, yeah, pretty, we love both of those guys. Yeah, they're amazing. academic pedigree growing there for Raj. And then he went from there, he went over to the University of Cambridge to, to build on that pedigree to work with Austin Smith, who's a, a very well-known stem cell we biologist, in particular over the here. neural stem cells. <laughs> yep. uh, Raj did a lot of work uh, in a related field to Yosef and myself, which is uh, the field of Parkinson's disease, or the disease, I should say, Parkinson's, where uh, we all were looking at different ways to use stem cells to generate uh, the dopaminergic neurons that are lost in Parkinson's. And uh, Raj uh, had a lot of uh, uh, really important contributions and did a lot of good work on that subject when he was in NIH, NIH and then subsequently after. So uh, after that, uh, he uh, returned home and um, decided that uh, or something, and we're going to find out what that is, Yost, pushed him into politics, and he's now running for Congress, the 16th District of Pennsylvania, uh, because he is fed up with, with you know, way, the way that things are going in the government, like us all, especially in the science realm, and we hope he can help us all. So let's let's uh, welcome uh, Dr. Raj Katapa to the Stem Cell Podcast. Raj, how you doing, man? Doing great. It's great to be on here with, uh, with you and Yosef. It's been a long time. Yes. Um, so last time I saw you was in Europe, and it's it's That's funny right. that you went to school with uh, Mark Tomashima, who was a guest of ours uh, previously over at Har- at Princeton. Princeton. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry to confuse. And um, yeah, it's it's a small world, and and we found out a month ago that you're running for Congress, and it was just blew our minds. So we had to have you on here and find out what is going on. 
So with that, I guess, Raj, why don't you tell everyone first, well, before we get into that, your, how, you know, how you got into the world of stem cells and, and, and you know, your, your, your love for the science and, and give us a little walkthrough of where Brody yeah, brings sure. you up to your decision on going to Congress, where we're wanting to go to Congress. Sure. So uh, I was born in Wilmington, Delaware, just outside of Philadelphia. But when I was a kid, my parents moved to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which is the heart of the 16th district congressional district in Pennsylvania. So my dad, he's now retired. Uh, He was a mathematics professor here in Lancaster County. And my mother, she's still working as a biology teacher at a local high school. In fact, uh, just a few days ago, one of her students was the grand champion at the local Lancaster County Science Fair. Uh, So science has been pretty, pretty big for us uh, just about forever. So I went to the University of Pennsylvania after I graduated from high school. I graduated from Penn when I was 20, and I went to Princeton to get my Ph.D. in the Department of Molecular Biology. At Princeton, I had kind of a funny thesis in that I did it basically two related topics in two different places. All of it was really supervised by Ihor Lamishka. The first part of my thesis I did in a pharmaceutical company, Bristol-Myers Squibb, which was located a few miles from Princeton. And that concerned a different kind of uh, system in regenerative medicine. And that's one that we've known about really for hundreds of years, even before people started talking about stem cells. That's the regenerating limb in the salamander. So we were looking for different kinds of genes that were expressed uh, in different situations in the regenerating limb. And with a guy named Hans-Georg Simon, who's now at Northwestern University, we discovered a pair of transcription factors which are differentially expressed in regenerating arms and limbs. And they turn out to be kind of the master regulators of armness or legness. So armness or legness, that was a pretty neat study. Armness or legness. So actually, if you, if you misexpress the leg transcription factor in a chicken wing, it'll grow scales and talons scales. Like scales. Oh, wow. That's, all right. That's great. Back to can the dinosaur. I want, I want scales and talons yeah, going, for, the, for the Game of Thrones premiere this Sunday. Can I can I get that gene put into my own? Go, going back to the dinosaur roots, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's so confused that it goes back to that primitive state. Interesting. So so uh explain how you got into so, neuroscience because you I mean, there's so much to say about Raj. I mean, like your your Fox mm-hmm. A two knockout mouse is probably one of the best Parkinson's models that I know of out there in terms of oh, recapitulation of the yeah, disease. We were... And, like, there, there's I, there's so much. And, and you have, like, an encyclopedic knowledge of people's pedigree, too. The, these are things that I, I've accumulated. And I know that uh-huh. you're a big Phillies fan. So you're, you're, you're like the American dream here, too. <laughs> Listen to, like, growing, how you grew up and now coming back to America I have so many questions for you, so uh, pick one of those. So I'll just go, yeah, <laughs> shoot them off. Uh, well, uh, let, let's talk about like how you got into neuroscience. Okay. So in the second part of my thesis, I was wrapping things up at Princeton University with Ihor Lamishka, and we did a kind of study on the emergence of hematopoietic stem cells in the embryo. And I really love looking at embryos. And I knew I wanted to continue in stem cells and regenerative medicine. And what I really figured was in 20 years, in 50 years, I was still going to be thinking, we were still going to be thinking about how the brain works 
And so I decided neuroscience was the right path for me. And especially looking at embryos, when the system is so simple and so small and just being assembled, figured this is the best way to understand the brain. And as all of us who do Parkinson's disease research, stem cell biology, often say, the best way to figure out how to rebuild the brain is to figure out how the brain is built in the first place. So that's what led me to go work with, uh, with Ron Mackay at the NIH. Of course, you know, Ron is really a stem cell pioneer. Ron, yeah, yeah. He's, Lorenz Studer, our, uh, you know, he was our mentor as well, uh, studied yeah. under Ron. Yeah, so Ron's like the granddaddy of, of them all. <laughs> Ron, Ron is like the granddaddy, and I kind of think of Lorenz as my uncle. That yeah. uh, he was he was sort of the the first dopamine neuron and Parkinson's guy in Washington, and since he's come to New York, he he's taken that uh, to a whole another level with you guys. It's uh, I'm really amazed by what's what you guys have been able to do with human cells. So, and, yeah, uh, why don't you talk about that work with Ron Mackay, though, the uh, FOXA2, uh, what you found with that? Sure. So as I told you, I really like looking at embryos. And it occurred to us that if we were going to teach stem cells how to become dopamine neurons, we really had to figure out where dopamine neurons come from in an embryo. We knew roughly that they come from the midbrain and kind of the bottom part of the midbrain. And some of the developmental biology of that part of the nervous system had been worked out by Tom Jessel at Columbia University. So we had like a good, we had a good leg to stand on looking at uh, Tom Jessel's work, which was really in the spinal cord. But especially at that time, it seemed like a lot of scientists were kind of afraid to move uh, rostrally from the spinal cord and look at the hindbrain, the midbrain, the forebrain. And so we kind of had our, our uh, heavy task in front of us. So over the course of a year, uh, a very good MD-PhD student named Wendy Chang, who was working with me, we, uh, we set out to map every transcription factor we could in the developing ventral midbrain. And while we were doing this, we uh, came to the surprising conclusion that dopamine neurons were born uh, from an organizer at the ventral midline of the midbrain called the floor plate. Now, this was something that was really shocking because for some 80 years prior to that, everyone had thought that the floor plate was a non-neurogenic tissue. It basically supported the development of neurons around it. But I think Chris knows a little bit about the floor plate. <laughs> Chris right? does know a little bit about I it. I learned a lot from Raj, so there you go. <laughs> well, yeah, once again, you know, I'm... I'm so happy to see that, uh, that that discovery that we made in the mouse embryo, Chris was able to really capitalize on that and generate, in my opinion, the first steps towards a human ES cell therapy for Parkinson's disease. Ooh, nice, nice. Yeah, th uh, thanks, Raj. And I mean, I remember reading that paper. Don't, I mean, there was this, I believe it was in uh, 2007. I think it was right before the new year. I think it was December 2007, if I'm not wrong. Um, with the with the paper that was the FOXA2 controlled the uh, the birth of dopaminergic neurons and 
uh, and this was in, in that old age model. And I remember, uh, just, this is right before I was getting ready to go to Lorenz's, thinking to myself, um, this because you know, I, I, before for everybody out there, if you if you're transitioning to another laboratory, you're winding down your work in one. And then you're, you know, you're trying to get background on the next place you're going. And so I knew I was going to a, sure. a lab to generate dopamine neurons. I started reading the history of them. And then I read this paper. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, there seems to be a clear uh, diverging path here, that there's a whole body of literature on X. And the work that uh, Raj and Wendy was putting out was kind of a departure from the traditional. And uh, it was at a perfect time for me because I was just getting in. And I figured we need to really need to explore this FOXA2 thing in the human system a bit more. And so uh, yeah, I you mean, can see I think here how, you know, mm-hmm. it's nice. We should say for the audience that FOXA2 is one of the seminal markers that we use to identify midbrain dopaminergic neurons. We, if it's FOXA2 and TH positive, which is tyrosine hydroxylase, we know that we have the phenotype of a midbrain dopamine neurons. And uh, these two scientists here help really tease that out. Yeah. So back at the NIH, we were actually able to show part of the point, you know, from the beginning was where do they come from? And if we know where they come from, how can that teach us how to make dopamine neurons from stem cells? And so FOXA2 really was our teacher in a way. So FOXA2 turns out to be necessary and sufficient to make midbrain dopamine neurons in the embryo well, and also from it stem it's, cells. It's a transcription factor, which means it controls all sorts of genes uh, very yes. early on and is a sort of master regulator. But we also see it in weird places like the liver, right? It's, it's not just restricted to midbrain dopamine neurons. That's right. Actually, in fact, it's expressed widely in the developing endoderm, so the gut system, and then in certain specific cells in our internal organs later on. Well, and actually, one of the a gut kind connection of do- with uh, midbrain dopamine neurons, so that doesn't surprise me. I mean, there's there's yeah. something to the gut as well, and I'm sure you know about all that. But um, yeah, so uh, talk about that mouse because it's also cool what that knockout <laughs> mouse does. Well, sometimes. When you do a lot of good experiments and you work really hard, uh, you get a good you get a bit of good luck too, and hopefully you're smart enough to recognize it. So we were breeding FOXA2 mice in order to see FOXA2 mutant mice in order to see and show ultimately that a loss of FOXA2 uh, would lead to the absence of midbrain dopamine neurons, and that is the case. But as our colony began to age of these heterozygous mice, we started to observe uh, additional kind of motor phenotypes in the older mice. And much to our surprise, when we looked more closely at the brains of these mice, we saw that they were missing midbrain dopamine neurons. And this was in a pattern that is consistent with what you see in human Parkinson's disease patients. So it became not only one of the first yeah, the animal genetic models of Parkinsonism, yeah. but it really modeled also the, the aging component of it. And that's something that we haven't really gotten to the bottom of entirely. Uh, I, did a, I did a number of studies on that, and I know about a number of studies that are ongoing, uh, but I think that mouse still has a lot to teach us about 
Parkinsonism. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And that's a big deal because we really didn't have a very good model. There are all these knockouts and uh, mutants, uh, you know, where we were trying to recapitulate the disease in mice and trying to, you know, make a, a 85-year-old, you know, man disease in a yeah, two-year-old right. mouse, it turned out to be really hard because mice don't live past two or three years. So it, right. it really... But that mouse in particular uh, has both those components, uh, the aging and the asymmetric tremble. And, you know, it was it was really, really impressive. So so let me let me do this just so we can let me because I want to keep I want to keep your journey moving along, Rosh, because I, I really sure. want to get to your your current endeavor. So I guess That's what right. we can do, which is kind of cool. Let, let, let's do it this way. So you have uh, Raj, who reported a lot of this. Uh, really important early work on Fox A2 saying that, hey, everybody, attention, this is what you need. Uh, I took that work and it was able to generate a protocol from human embryonic stem cells to create dopamine floor plate. That protocol was then subsequently altered by another lab member, uh, Sonia Cricks, and Yosef was involved in that study as well. Uh, they put it in, into animals and showed that they can graft and, and, and produce a really beautiful transplant. And then and now recently, uh, we talked with Justine Miller and Yosef in their recent study, which shows in those neurons, you can actually induce aging now by using this progeria gene. So you can see how uh, the three people on the phone here actually uh, dominoed and picked, you know, kind of, it's really nice to see I, I, how, I how people's work can just kind of, you know, push the field along. And so we can really, i triangle right now yeah. on the air to see that, how, you know. Yeah, cool. I'm so proud to talk to you guys because, you know, that's when you know you did a good experiment. Uh, uh, Raj, you, you know Raj. what? You're absolutely right, Raj. In the age of reproducibility and this stab cell controversy that we're hearing, it's awesome to see that our experiments and our results have been able to be replicated, you know, in theory and pushed along. So that's an, that's an awesome, awesome thing. Um, Raj, tell us about your time in England and uh, when you left um, the states and after the Fox A2, you know, uh, paper when you went to Austin Smith's lab and uh, what, which, which, what caused this transition into politics? Yeah, sure. So uh, when I went to, uh, I, I left Ron's lab for a new challenge. I thought I'd move overseas to the UK. I thought that would be a pretty good experience. Um. And I wanted to do something slightly different because there were many, many people working on dopamine neurons, and I thought I could start to take this even earlier, take a similar approach to what I'd taken, starting with first principles. So Austin had had some trouble with neural stem cells over in Cambridge, and he basically enlisted me to take it to another level over there. So over in Cambridge, what I did was I micro-dissected the neural plate, which is the earliest uh, recognizable neural tissue in the post-gastrula embryo. And I learned how to grow this in culture. Once I learned how to grow these cells from a mouse embryo, I was able to derive these cells from human embryonic stem cells and also from human iPS cells. And so these cells can be propagated up to 40 to 50 passages, and they retain the ability to make dopamine neurons, serotonin neurons, motor neurons, 
it was really a lot of trial and error, but uh, we found a brand new set of growth factors which really regulate the propagation of these cells. Uh, and this was a surprise, or at least partially a surprise. And then when we looked more closely at gene expression in these cells, that actually ended up teaching us some things we didn't know about the neural plate and very early neurogenesis in the embryo. So some of the steps that we thought were involved, some of the genes that we thought were critical, actually are critical at a later stage than when the neural plate is first induced. Do you think there's an advantage to, uh, say, a neural stem cell line from an uh, embryonic stem cell line? Uh, I think it cuts out a couple of steps and makes things certainly a bit cleaner. And uh, at least my, in my experience working with both human embryonic stem cells and these derivative neural plate cells... Um, the, the differentiation is a bit more synchronous and more complete. I mean, it seems that seems correct to me. I, 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 I've always thought, you know, I've been conceiving of the neural stem cell line, which nobody is. I mean, they're LTNSLs. The uh, the Bristol Lab has published on right. that, as you know, and um, you know the patternability of those is not so in question. I mean, it's really they're you know you can. You can do stuff with neural stem cell lines, and I'm I'm just wondering: is there an advantage or a disadvantage uh, with going with a fully, you know, a pluripotent stem cell versus a more restricted lineage? Which makes sense. I mean, you want neurons, why not go to a neural stem cell line instead of an embryonic? You don't need all the right. gut and well, endoderm. I mean, as Chris said, you know, we're, we're we're three people that have been working in this field for a long time, and you know. How many people out there struggle to grow and differentiate stem cells? So it makes sense to me, if we're going to translate this to the clinic, to cut as many steps out as we can to make it easier for everyone. Well, I would love to see a gene profile of a dopamine neuron derived from one of the, the what do you call them, uh, neural plate-derived stem cells and embryonic. Yeah, neural plate stem cells. Yeah, the, 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 I'd love to see if there were any differences. I, I doubt there will be, but I'm sure that, I'm well, there will be, but not major differences. Uh, well, I think I got got to remember, it's all, it's all in the developmental progression, right? You have ES cells then you have neural plate, then you have dopaminergic. So if you start with neural plate, you're just cutting out that primitive cell. So in theory, the road to the end is the same. You're just starting at a different exit, you know. Right. Yeah, and the key is expandability. If they're exp expandable at that neural plate stage for indefinitely, then there's, there's an advantage there of skipping out that embryonic st stage. So, okay, you're doing that. And I, I picture you at the bench working, and then all of a sudden, boom, I'm going to go to yeah. Washington. How does that happen? So I, I, I decided I decided I, we kind of hit the spot that we wanted to hit. I wrote, it, I wrote up the paper. It's not out yet. All the patent stuff was, was settled, um, and it was time for me to come back to the States. So something kind of important happened while I was in Cambridge, and that is that my, my dad had kind of a minor stroke in December of 2012. And unfortunately, at the same time, my visa was being processed over there. And that, for whatever reason, got delayed. 
and I ended up being stuck in Cambridge through December and over the holidays, and it was really the worst Christmas ever. Uh, And I felt completely helpless and just terrible for my dad while he was recovering. So I'd I'd more or less determined at that point that I was going to be coming back to the States in 2013. I started talking to a lot of people over here about uh, about uh, positions at different universities, and things were moving along, but people were telling me about the sequester. I remember every time I saw Yosef, said, how is it over there? What's going on with money? And Yosef and other people would tell me, it's not going well. But I didn't really know how well, how badly things were going until I got back. And so I was taking a little time off. I was talking to people. I uh, was also gearing up to, to maybe start a company over here. And uh, then the shutdown happened. And I'd love to hear you know, from you guys personally how the shutdown affected you. Of course, I know many scientists personally from my time at the NIH, and their lives were really profoundly affected. I've heard about, for instance, uh, mouse models of disease that were lost during this period, cell lines that were lost during this period. You know, hardly anybody was allowed to report to work. And I, as far as I can see in Washington, this did kind of irreparable damage. So the shutdown spearheaded this? It did. The shutdown and, and my local congressman where I grew up, he, he was very much for the shutdown. He, he's one of the more extreme Tea members Party. in Congress, a Tea Party sympathizer named Joe Pitts. And I'm not very fond of, uh, of Joe Pitts. And especially with all the damage that was being done in Washington, I was pretty eager to help whoever was going to run against this guy the next time out. And as I began talking to more and more people, they said to me, you know, you're taking a little time off anyway. And I'd been thinking about uh, what my next challenge was going to be in science. And I started feeling like I was just turning the crank anyway. I, I really needed to come up with a big new challenge. And I decided took me about a month. But, uh, yeah, that's what motivated me to run for Congress. And which district? It's your home district? It's, my, it's the district where I grew up. So it's the 16th district of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And you would so be... Lancaster. You would be the... The city of Reading. You would yeah. be replacing one of, I think, only two PhDs in the House, you know, in the Congress, basically. Uh, he's a senator... Uh, who is it? Rush Holt. Holt. Rush Holt. Yeah, he yeah, was... Yeah, Rush Holt from New Jersey. And actually from Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. Yeah, I mean... In fact, he, I he's remember when he was, he was first elected while I was a PhD student, and Princeton couldn't have been prouder. Well, Scientists hope, really rallied around him. Hopefully. And that's why I'm, I'm so happy to be talking to you guys. And I hope that the scientific community, and especially people that care about stem cells, that I can galvanize them get them involved and excited about my campaign. So, so let's, yes, let's test, uh, 
Let's test the would-be congressman, Dr. Raj Katapa. You ready? Let's, let's, let's do a little test here because as the average uh, person, uh, scientist, American, we say things like, it's this, you know, when we talk about D.C., we talk about Congress, we talk about this, we, say, we use words like ridiculous, you know, fed up, lazy, it's, it's, it's insane. This is this. And quite frankly, as a scientist, too, who depends on, the, I mean, a lot of people depend on the government, right? But in our field where our, our entire life can be altered by one stupid decision made at the government, right. um, we're, we're a little bit more sensitive to these things. So tell me and tell everyone out there. Uh, as scientists, we have a certain type of mind. So, so tell everybody out there why you think that kind of mind is going to be good for the culture of, of Washington and Congress and what you're going to try to do. You know, I, I was thinking about this earlier in our discussion when we were talking about, you know, the first time that I was doing immunohistochemistry for all these transcription factors in the ventral midbrain, and I realized the dopamine neurons are coming from the floor plate. And then you did a great experiment based on that. And then Sonia and Yosef did some great experiments based on all this stuff. You know, in science, if, if you really want to do a good experiment, I always feel like you have to start with the first principles. You have to start with basic principles, and you build on them systematically. As scientists, we are professional problem solvers. I don't think there should just be two scientists on Capitol Hill it seems to me that we could use even a few more. So one of the big problems in Washington right now is all the rhetoric. It's so polarized in Washington. Everything that's coming out of Washington is noise. Nobody's actually really staring at the metrics, or at least let's say the people on the Hill aren't. People in think tanks and other folks, they're looking at the numbers, but we're not really generating any policy and we're not having any meaningful discussion over the metrics, right? So you saw how quickly in the stem cell community we kind of rooted out this step, this stem cell controversy. I think that's the kind of thinking that we need on Capitol Hill as well. Well, um, do me this favor. If you do this and you make it to Congress, which I really... You know, I hope you do. I hope uh, Rush Holt's listening. He endorses you. You get whatever you need to do this. Just promise me this. You will call for on the, you know, floor that yeah. a doubling of the NIH budget. Because we're talking peanuts of what Wall Street's getting to I, play with. With I QE3, with we're talking about what, two weeks of that policy would double the NIH budget and uh. cause so much... Uh, stimulation in terms of science and uh, economics too. I mean, there's so many techs who would be funded from that, and you know, professors. I, I think and I, all I that, think so. I hear I think I hear a rant brewing. Yes, yes. if I can yes. smell yes. it, yes. Oh, I that's, smell the rant brewing. <laughs> look, I'll be the strongest advocate in general for science and technology ever in Congress. You know, it's really the United States since the Industrial Revolution through World War II, into the computer era, into our smartphone era, we've always been the leaders, right? And we're starting to see that slip away a little bit. We've seen decreases in the NIH budget two out of the last three cycles. Um, this, is, this is not working. This is the time, exactly the time, as you point out, that we need to be putting more money in. Because biotechnology, pharma, basic research, 
these are really our jobs for the future. It's, it's kind of funny to me when I hear people complain about iPhones being made in China. And people often forget that iPhones were developed here. That's American ingenuity. And these are really the jobs that everybody's kids, we should set up for everybody's kids in the next 20 or 30 years. And that's the investment that we make now. Yeah, I find it amazing that only one out of 10 schools teaches programming now. And it's, it's like, come on, we got to update our schools. Uh, it's, uh, science education needs an update, a reboot. Uh, so hopefully you could get some some of that funding and bring up these issues because I don't even hear anybody saying no. stuff like yeah, no you one's know really talking. you got to think yeah. big and yeah. I've never even heard anybody say double the NIH budget it's thirty three thirty five billion what is it double it seventy billion that's one month of uh, <laughs> QE three let's do it let's do it well it's it's been a long time since we saw any kind of meaningful increase in the NIH budget. And I think at this point, so many scientists, you know, have been worn down by the, by the lack of support from the government. People like Bob Klein in California and Susan Solomon at the New York Stem Cell Foundation, Deval Patrick in Massachusetts, have done unbelievable jobs yeah. by stem cell scientists. Yeah. But you're right. It's nothing compared I, to the I, big pool. I have that's to say, the NIH. even the blind governor as well. Remember him? He yeah, he, yeah, he he secured some serious funding for you know uh, New York stem cell research, and I'll always be grateful for that. Um, so that's what right. you're doing matters, and public policy matters, and I hope I really hope you do it. And here here's what here's what I admire, Yosef and I. We get on this microphone and we rant and we bitch and we complain. You, my friend, just leave it and go run for Congress. So I, I got to applaud you for taking a major, a major career alter because uh, you believe that there needs a change. And I, and I, I think everybody thinks that and agrees with that. And so yeah. I urge all of you scientists out there, uh, everyone who's listening, uh, and especially scientists because I know it resonates. Um, we should have a voice of us in Congress, uh, and I, uh, the man right here, uh, would be that voice. Yeah, so how can to people do support politics, you? Really, uh, you, it really comes down to. And Raj, you can talk about this. Just, just I know, I know, fundraising is the major part because to build your campaign sure. and to get momentum, especially to take down uh, someone who's been. Uh, how long has he been in that district? You're. It's going to be 18 years this so 18 year. years. So, so, so to really make an impact, the fundraising is going to be key. So everybody out there, uh, if, you can, if you can go and try to support Raj and get, put some yeah. money to his campaign, it would be really uh, tremendous. So why don't you tell us how we can go about doing that, Raj? Yeah, that, that's great. That's exactly right, Chris. Campaigns aren't cheap. And, you know, I'm not a natural-born fundraiser. It's, it's different than writing a grant. Um, but if you can <laughs> donate, that, that would be tremendous because campaigns do cost money so i have a website it's www.rajforcongress2014.com is that the number four or f-o-r raj for congress it's f-o-r all right 2014 and if you if you go to that website there, there is a contribute button. You can contribute online using your credit card. There's also an address if you'd like to send a check. And it, it really does 
matter. We really do need to build up funds to run a competitive campaign to make sure that we get Joe Pitts out and that there's a strong voice for science on Capitol Hill. Well, uh, yeah, we know uh, money matters in politics, and uh, the recent Supreme Court decision doesn't seem to be helping that issue per se. But uh, let's hope uh, you get some the support you need to get you in there, and um, we really wish you the best, my friend. I'm really happy. I'm really happy for you. So um, yeah, so everybody, get out there and try to help out. Help out Raj. Go to his uh, website uh, again. It's it's uh, it's Raj for Congress 2014.com. You can get more information about Raj the campaign, and you can uh, help him out by donating to his uh, his campaign. And, and let's get a scientist in there so we can get some get some things done over there, man. Jeez. On that note, let's uh, wrap it up. What do you say, Chris? All right, so we're going to rant. We were going to rant today about the uh, uh, the funding in Congress, but we kind of did. You want to you continue it on, or you want to you wanna go somewhere else? Yos, what are you feeling, man? What have you got anything that's uh, burning? Well, like I was wondering burning? if uh, Raj maybe had a funny story he'd like to share to close this out. A funny story. <laughs> Uh-oh, he got him. Yeah, he just what totally kind of funny story? I, I'm not telling too many funny stories now that I'm running for Congress. You know, so <laughs> maybe maybe you were thinking of something in particular. Well, uh, it, we, you know, we've definitely uh, been through a lot in Europe. We saw, we saw uh, somebody get impaled once, which was interesting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, oh that, that, that was a complete accident. Somebody got caught on a... Uh, Climbing a fence. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and in, in in Europe, these iron fences with the kind of spears, they're actually sharp. Yes. In the United States, I, I think they're more for show, but over there, they're actually meant to impale you. And this uh, this poor Irish PhD student, uh, he got himself uh, caught on one of those. And uh, I think Yosef and I helped to unhook him from the... Uh, from the fence, yeah. And luckily, uh, luckily, actually, my my PhD student over there is trained as a as a MD. Yeah, and he, so he he got was right surrounded by doctors. He was surrounded by doctors, so he was in good hands <laughs> in that sense. So, uh, wait, so he actually got impaled, or no? Like it went through I, his body? I mean, what's your definition of impaled? The guy was like bleeding a lot. That's crying. for sure. <laughs> When I when I'm thinking impaled, I'm thinking like whatever went through is now out the other side. <laughs> it was it was it was close to that. There was serious damage done. So he had to go oh, to so the hospital. He climbed to the top of the fence and then he got scared because it was very high. And so we were standing below to catch him when he jumped, but when he jumped, his feet didn't hit the ground. He was hanging up there and we had to kind of unlatch him. Yeah. That's uh, a very, very pleasant story. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, you want to rant about you want to rant about getting impaled? No, no, that's <laughs> not good. Didn't didn't look like fun. I guess that's our funny story. <laughs> it's 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 all wrapped up in one there. Just a, hey, a w- you know what? I just had an idea. You guys, um, you know, Bill Maher is doing this flip a district thing. Yos, have you seen this thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. I wonder if we can get Mr. Pitts on the radar. Yeah, he is the Pitts. We got to get him out. Let's do it. All right, Bill. Bill Maher, if you're out there, I think we got one for you. I'm going to send you a clip of this podcast so we can get Mr. Pitts up on the uh, on the on the bracket for your flip a district, so we can get my man Dr. Raj in Congress. Everybody out there, go go to the website, donate some money. 
All right, you guys no. have plenty of it out there anyway. You might as well give it to Raj. So, uh, <laughs> and watch out! Don't get impaled. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That should be your uh, that should be your slogan for 2014. Raj okay, we'll start designing something right away. <laughs> don't get impaled. Uh, serious note. Listen, man, we wish you all the best of luck, and we and I know you. I know you. You really you've been successful. You succeeded at everything you do, and why not? Why not this endeavor? So. Good luck, man, and congratulations for taking the step. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chris and Joseph. All right, on that note... What do you say, man? Should we close it down? Yeah, yeah. Talk to you later, Roger. Okay. Good luck.